Well, we're at lesson 22 in our study of the Gospel of uh, Mark. And uh, the title for the message is, How Do You Spell Success? You know what I do with titles. I thought afterwards, the real question is, how does God spell success? That's the uh, important issue. Let me see if we've got our pictures up here of... uh, Years gone by. Can you flip to the next uh, scene on there? This, and then go to the next picture too, if you would. Those pictures are 50 some years old. They came from a slide. Uh, I overturned everything I could find at our house, and my mother went through all the slides. But this is the trip that I've mentioned to you before, where, and this is sort of the scene, if you could draw back, you would see a picnic table and a tent that we borrowed from my aunt. And uh, my sister and I and my, and my younger sister and brother and my uh, folks standing there with great smile on our face. See how clear the sky is and beautiful? And, and I call that picture the lull before the storm, wherever it went. But just a few hours later, we discovered mountain thunderstorms. And that nice hollowed out place that seemed so perfect for our tent was like a lake as the rains began to come and literally the tent was filling up with water. We were several inches deep. My brother was probably four. He was singing, Jesus loves me at the top of his lungs. We wadded up the tent, the sleeping bags, stuffed it into the trunk. I I kid you not. And we went to the nearest motel. (laughs) I think that was the last camping trip we ever made. (laughs) And my point in all of that is, things may start well, but not end so well. But I thought I ought to throw in something that would be more contemporary to you, like the World Series. Oh, the first day things are looking good, right? Uh, But a week later, things are not so glorious. And that is the way we see the triumphal entry as we find it in the scriptures. As I was thinking about the subject of success, uh, it it occurred to me that this is one of the most popular topics probably for for book writing that there is. So I went out to Amazon.com and did a search on success. And you can see I had almost 125,000 hits. The books on success and how to get there are numerous. The books which define success are far fewer. And obviously, there is only one book that defines success in the way that we should embrace and adopt. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus in the light of all of the Gospels and what they have to share, but most particularly, I want to look at it in the light of what Mark himself says. In other words, to follow my little trail of thought, I want to connect the dots in Mark to see where this particular event, the great entry of our Lord into Jerusalem, uh, will fit. And I want to see from that what real success looks like, uh, because I believe we can learn a great deal. And it has occurred to me in the process of going through all of this, it has occurred to me that there is a great relevance and application of this to saints today as we await 
the second coming of our Lord Jesus, what does this text tell us as we look at those who are receiving the Lord Jesus on his first uh, entry? So let's look, make some uh, initial observations uh, that I think will be helpful to us. The triumphal entry is found in all four Gospels, and you know that that is not true of many things. So it must be a significant event. Uh, it is the only recorded appearance of our Lord in Jerusalem in the Synoptic Gospels. In other words, when you read the Gospel of John, you see Jesus going to Jerusalem on numerous occasions. John chapter 2, cleansing of the temple. John chapter 5, John chapter 7. Almost Jerusalem, John chapter 11, Bethany, two miles away, and then the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Jesus makes numerous appearances. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus makes one public appearance that is recorded uh, because that is the focus of where our Lord Jesus is going. This is the only instance that I am aware of in all of the New Testament, all the Gospels, where Jesus ever rode anywhere. <laughs> I'd like to see Jesus' sandals. I'll bet they were shop-worn. He walked. He walked many miles. But this short journey, he rode. Only instance that I'm aware of where that is the case. When you look at the references to Jerusalem, and there are references in the Synoptic Gospels, when you look at the references to Jerusalem in the Gospels, it is not a pretty picture that you get, and you don't have a great deal of optimism about what is going to happen in Jerusalem when Jesus arrives there. Let me just give you a, a few of those indications. Remember in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when the Magi appear and they announce that they have seen the star which says that the Messiah, the King of the Jews, has been born. It says Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled. So far as we are told, nobody from Jerusalem got down that, that short path to Bethlehem to check on that child, other than the soldiers who were sent to dispatch not only that child, but all children near the age of our Lord Jesus. It's the Jerusalem leaders who come to check out John the Baptist and to check out Jesus. Very early in the game, the Jerusalem leaders are saying, who are you? What are you about? And that quickly turns to opposition, as you know, in the scriptures. Now, on the other side of the coin, Jesus is not exactly a kind and mellow toward the Jerusalem religious leadership. I mean, start out the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you ain't going to heaven. Well, that doesn't exactly come across as the warm fuzzies for the guys who are leaders in Jerusalem. And Matthew 23, which will come in, in chronology a little later than this event, will also be an indictment. But it's also interesting in, in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Remember when there were those people who were, who were killed by uh, Herod? And the question was, you know, sort of what did they do that was so bad that would result in that? 
And the Lord Jesus says, do you think they were more sinful than the other Galileans? Do you think they were worse just because they had something bad happen? And then he says, do you think when the, when this wall collapsed, this arch collapsed, do you think that those people were more sinful than all the people of Jerusalem? Isn't that an interesting statement? The people of Jerusalem are not so pious. They haven't had a wall fall on them, but they're not so pious either. The Jerusalem leaders very quickly are intent on putting Jesus to death, very quickly in the Gospels. And as time goes on, they are more and more intent on doing so. And you know from, uh, from Mark chapter 10, verse 32, and also John chapter 11, when they're heading for Bethany, Thomas says, let's go with him that we may die also. The disciples were not optimistic about this trip. It was one that they engaged in with a certain degree of fear and trembling, although their aspirations are still for a glorious visit and result. More than one-third of the Gospel of Mark is devoted to this final week. That's not really any revelation. That's true of all of the Gospels. Great emphasis placed on this final week, which commences with the triumphal entry of our Lord. But virtually no miracles are performed during this period of time. I say virtually because, you know, there is the cursing of the fig tree, but not many people were in on that. And I don't think anybody's standing around saying, glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. (laughs) One less fig tree in Jerusalem. I don't think that was any big deal. So virtually no miracles, but many miracles had been performed there in Jerusalem in the past. And a number of the recipients of those miracles were present. Case in point would be blind Bartimaeus, right? And Lazarus. And a number of those people who witnessed those healings were present. So when Jesus approaches the city, the the recipients of of his healing are there, probably the man born blind from John chapter 9. He's around, and they're saying, the king is coming, you know, and these other people are saying, I've been healed, and others are saying, I saw people get healed. So there is that element that sets the stage for the Lord Jesus. Here, I've, I'm going to make a point that I think I'm not sure everybody does. I was going to show you a clip from the movie, The Gospel of John, of the triumphal entry. And I decided not to. I love that movie. I love that, that, that uh, depiction of the life of Christ using the text of the Gospel of John. But they were cheap when it came to the triumphal entry scene. Now, I realize when you're doing movies... If they had to hire people to stand there that would represent this crowd of people, that's a big budget item. And so you got this skimpy little line. I hate to say it, but you got this skimpy little line of people who are lined up single file as Jesus is coming and they're waving their palms. Hey, folks, there's a whole lot more people than that. Now, I was caused to stop and reflect because R.T. France and, and a, a much respected preacher of my earlier days strongly suggest that what is going on in the praise of the people is actually the praise of Galileans. So the argument goes like this. Many people have said, what a fickle group this Jerusalem bunch is. 
They welcome Jesus at the beginning and a week later they're yelling, crucify, crucify. But that's not really true, they tell us. Those who are praising Jesus at this triumphal entry are Galileans who have come with Jesus. I I just have to get off that train. I thought I was on it, but I had to get off for this reason. When you look at all the Gospels, look at all the people who made up the crowd. You've got the disciples. That would be the 12 disciples plus the others, like the 70 that Jesus sent out, plus many women, we are told, who followed Jesus. There are the Galileans who come. As you can see, for instance, in John 4.45, the Galileans uh, normally made the trek to Jerusalem and were a part of that. And I believe they were a part of the party that our Lord has with him as he comes. There are those who come from the country, that is, those who come from the from the outer reaches, uh, the remoter places of the land, and they find their way up to Jerusalem. We know from John's Gospel that Greeks are there, and they want to have a, a, a conference, a consultation with Jesus, but they're there as well. There are the foreign pilgrims, and if you look at Acts chapter 2, you see at Pentecost, there are people, it says, from every part of the known world who are there. There is a huge crowd of people, and, and uh, that, I'm sure, would be as true or more true at Passover as well as it was at, at Pentecost. So you've got a large group of people. Uh, I remember hearing, and I grant you this is not straight from Scripture, but I think it's Josephus who does tend to fudge a little on his figures. I wonder what party he would be with today. Well, we don't want to go there. Anyway. Probably both. He, Josephus says that, that some years after the death of our Lord, 250,000 young lambs were slaughtered at Passover. Now, if you remember that there needed to be 10 or more people that participated in that, you got a lot of people in Jerusalem who have converged there. It's no wonder that they camped outside and, and everywhere they could. Man, it was a huge, huge gathering. And from John's Gospel, we also know that there were those who came out from the city. Now, you got to remember, Jesus is on, on top of the Mount of Olives. He's near Bethany and Bethphage, and, and he's going to get the, uh, the donkey, and then he's going to head down the slope and, and through the valley and back up into uh, Jerusalem proper, the city of Jerusalem, and to the temple. But... There are those who came out of the city, and I would say these were one, among others, those who had somehow found residence there for that time, but probably you'd call them the old guard, wouldn't you? The native, (laughs) the native Jerusalem people who were there all the time. They, some of them, came out of the city. Now, were there cynics and scoffers in that group? Absolutely. There were those who said to Jesus, Tell your disciples, tell these people to stop praising you. But uh, in spite of that, I take it that this crowd is a representation of all Israel. That's just my take. And that it is, therefore, a fickle change in these people when you get to the last week. It's a very fickle change from the greeting that they give initially to the cry for the death of our Lord Jesus. Here's where it gets interesting. 
It is fascinating to read Mark's account in the light of the other three Gospels. It is fascinating. So what I want to do is just focus your attention on those things that are unique to each Gospel. Okay? Matthew. Two donkeys, not one. Remember that? It's, it's mama donkey and baby donkey. Now, it doesn't make that much difference. I don't know why, but Matthew likes twos. So you got two donkeys rather than one. And, and the other Gospels don't contradict it. They just focus on the colt. Uh, you've got the two blind men in Jericho. And you've got the two demoniacs rather than just legion. Uh, in the account of the, the exorcism. So Matthew is simply supplying additional detail that doesn't contradict anything the others have said. Here's the big one for me. The disappointing downgrade in the identification of Jesus. Jesus comes into the city and all of the people, and, and now remember, there are many pilgrims, people who are strangers to this scene, and they're saying, who in the world is this? And the answer is, Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, i got to tell you, folks, if you don't think that's a downgrade, I do. Because in John chapter 7, verse 52, remember when Jesus comes and, 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 and they send out the arresting party and the party comes back and says, man, we've never heard anybody speak like this. And the religious snobs say, including to Nicodemus, have you not read... No prophet comes from Galilee. So you got this. As I see it, you got the top of the heap, the Jerusalem big boys. Bottom of the heap, from a geographical point of view, the Samaritans. But I got to tell you, prophets from Galilee are not high on the totem pole of popularity and status. So when they say this is Jesus, it isn't just Jesus the mere prophet. It is Jesus the mere prophet from Hickville. That's that's what they're saying. That's not exactly Son of God, Messiah, is it? Downgraded Jesus, Luke. Very interesting in Luke's uh, gospel, there's the parable of the landowner that goes away and, and, and then comes back, remember, to get the, the proceeds from, from what uh, has been done on his, his plantation. It starts out in verse 11, and it says this, Jesus told this parable because there were many who thought the kingdom of God was coming immediately. The, the very words which precede the triumphal entry are the words of a parable that says, there is going to be a period of time before the king arrives. Isn't that interesting? And here is Jesus presenting himself as the king, but something is going to intervene in between. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. This one caught me by surprise. It says that Jesus, in effect, has just come over the top of the Mount of Olives. And so now as you break over the Mount of Olives, now you see the city of, of, of uh, Jerusalem spread out before you. He's just coming over there, and it says, Jesus' disciples who were with him at that point, just as the procession starts, they were praising God for the miracles that Jesus had done. 
Isn't that kind of an interesting thing to read? They're not saying, praise Jesus, who is God. They're saying, praise God for Jesus. And the basis of their praise is, look at all the good things he's done. I mean, that sounds like John chapter 6. Give us this bread forevermore. The miracle man's in town. That, my friend, is also a downgraded view of Jesus. Gospel of John. Who we? John chapter 2. You've got the first visit to Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting? Think on this. Isn't it interesting that John does not include the triumphal entry in, uh, uh, let me back up. John does not include a cleansing of the temple in conjunction with the triumphal entry. John gives us the triumphal entry. No cleansing of the temple. Where do we find a cleansing of the temple in John? Chapter 2, first visit to Jerusalem. Now, I do not see any contradiction. I believe that the first time Jesus came to Jerusalem, he cleansed that temple. I believe the last time Jesus came to Jerusalem, he cleansed that temple. Boy, did it need some cleaning up, too. But it's very interesting to me that right at the outset of John's gospel, when Jesus comes, it's about the temple. It's about the temple. That's where Jesus goes. The raising of Lazarus uh, that we see in chapter 11, wow, that stirs up a hornet's nest. You've got all these people from Jerusalem who have come to comfort Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus. They witness the miracle of Lazarus's railing, uh, raising, and, and then they go back and some report to the religious leaders what's happened. And so you have believers and unbelievers in that group, and that sets the religious leaders just literally on fire. They basically said to themselves, we've been putting this off too long. Jesus has to go. So this incident with Lazarus is huge. And it says in John's Gospel that many of those people who came, came not just to see Jesus, they came to see Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Uh, and that's why the religious leaders said to themselves, it isn't enough to kill Jesus. We've got to kill this Lazarus guy too. He's going to die again. That was Lazarus. Six days... Before our Lord, before, before Pentecost, our Lord arrives at Bethany and there is the celebration dinner that's going to take place at which Mary is going to wash the feet of our Lord Jesus with the expensive perfume. And it's Judas in John's gospel who objects to that. And we know that will trip Judas off to go to the religious leaders and say, how much? If I hand him over, how much? Um... And then it's the next day that Jesus heads into Jerusalem for that triumphal entry. And John tells us in chapter 12, verse 16, the disciples didn't understand anything about what was happening. As this thing is going on, nobody but Jesus, nobody but Jesus understood what Jesus was about so it, it isn't really a text that uh, makes us look with great affection on the wisdom of men. So here are the common elements uh, of emphasis that we find in the Gospels. One, the obtaining of the donkey 
parenthesis S, donkeys. Very, very interesting. Now, I have not read anybody who comes to my conclusion, which probably tells you more about me than them. But I'm telling you anyway. When you see this whole event and you see all these crowds and throngs of people who are already praising Jesus on the way down from the Mount of Olives, let alone on the way back up into Jerusalem, does it not seem to you that it's going to take a fair bit of time for people, now it doesn't take any, very long for people to rip off a coat and throw it down in front of the, 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 the donkey, but if you're going to go out into the fields and you're going to cut down palm fronds, it's going to take a little time. For that larger crowd, I believe, unlike I think most, I, I do not believe that Jesus prearranged the incident as he did with the room where they would meet for the Last Supper. The purpose of Jesus' prearrangement for the place he would meet to, to observe Passover was for the purpose of privacy. It was so that people wouldn't know where he was. The purpose for the for this working out of the procuring of the donkey is for the purpose of publicizing. So I do not see, as some do, that Jesus, this, this phrase, the Lord has need of him, as some kind of a secret password that he's arranged. And so here are these guys standing around. By the way, it is not the owner of the donkey, right? It's bystanders standing around. I told Gary that I wanted to illustrate that by sending a couple guys over and asking for the keys to his Corvette. And he would, of course, turn them right over to show how eager he was to do that. <laughs> it ain't going to happen, folks. <clears throat> and rightly so. But here you have this scenario where I think that Jesus' two disciples, I'm guessing it's Peter and John, his two disciples go and they start to unhitch the colt and, and its mother and to walk away. And these guys standing around, hey, look, they know who that belongs to. And they're saying, hold on there, partner. Where do you think you're going with that donkey? And the answer is, the Lord has need of him. I think there's no prearrangement at all. By the way, the word Lord there is not used very often in, Ma in, uh, in uh, Mark. I think it's used 18 times. It's used in the neighborhood of 250 times in the four Gospels. But when the term Lord is used... Often in Mark's gospel, it is a quotation from the Old Testament, and it means God. So I think what, the, what is being said is, God needs this animal. And what it's saying then is, Jesus is indeed God. I think what happens now is when the, the two disciples are leading that, the, that colt along, and by the way, it's an unridden colt. Okay, here comes Deffy's fiction. I, if you were going to get, does anybody want to get on an unbroken colt and ride it through a cheering throng? I mean, you know what you do to a bull with that red stuff, you know, and hello. <laughs> and that old bull says, hello, that's for me. When, 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 when Jesus got on that unbroken colt, that colt was as calm and tame as it could be. I'm not willing to make book that that colt was quite so cooperative with the two disciples. 
So let's just suppose that that cult decides to act up and you got this whole ruckus that goes on and they're trying to drag this thing. And all the time that this is going on, the word gets out. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to add the critical thing that Mark adds and I think one other gospel. The Lord needs it and he will bring it back shortly. Now you're saying to yourself, okay, Lord needs it, got that part. Bring it back shortly. It doesn't say, you know, I'll bring it back in a week or, you know, whatever. It's, we'll bring it right back. So the question has to be in these guys' minds. Wait a minute. Who needs a donkey for that short a time? And I think, even though Mark does not cite Zechariah 9.9, there's a lot of messianic expectation. I think these guys are saying, oh, Nelly. We got something going on here. And the rumor starts spreading around town. And everybody starts saying, the king is coming. That's my take on it. But it's the, it's the signal that our Lord orchestrates. And it's one more indication. Jesus is in absolute sovereign control of every piece of his entrance into Jerusalem and his rejection, death, and resurrection. Jesus is in charge. And, it, and it's evident, I think, in the procuring of the animal. Okay, you got the large crowd. That's emphasized in, uh, in all the Gospels. Spreading of the garments. This is a, a, apparently a fairly known tradition, but just so we keep it biblical. Do you remember when Jehu, when the prophet comes to Jehu? Jehu is that guy that drove chariots like a wild man. When, when uh, the prophet comes to Jehu, and, and he says, I want to speak to you privately. The other commanders were outside. And the first thing they said to Jehu when the prophet left is, what did that guy have to say? And he hesitates and finally says, well, he said I would rule over Israel. You remember what happens? Off come the coats, down on the ground. It was the sign, this man is royalty. So anyway, that may well be a part of this that comes out of the fabric of Judaism. Hosanna. When you look at that term, it's very interesting because it's basically a call upon God to save, literally. But by way of use, it began to be a, a, an expression of praise and it was one that apparently the pilgrims would say to each other, as celebration. So it actually, and I got this out of one of the concordances, it actually had by usage more the sense of hallelujah. Isn't there an irony in that? Because that's part of the downgrading, I think, of what's taking place. They're praising Jesus, the miracle worker. They're praising Jesus as the king that's going to toss Rome out on their ear. They're not really asking for salvation the way he is going to bring it and the way the Old Testament, I think, was speaking of it. So there's praise for the king and for the coming kingdom, but it's obviously a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom than what our Lord Jesus has in mind. Now, this is where we come to the unique contribution of Mark's gospel. I think this is the critical part. There is no immediate indication, as there is in Matthew, Luke, and John, no immediate indication that something's amiss. 
Matthew, you've got this downgraded view that, that somehow it's a prophet that doesn't bode well. And, and, and Luke, the big one is Luke, is it not? Because what does Jesus do during the approach while all this celebration is going on? He weeps over Jerusalem and he basically says, how sad it is that you have not recognized why I'm here and who I am. And so he speaks about the judgments that's going to fall upon Jerusalem. They're cheering. Jesus is weeping. Don't you wonder what it was like to be in the crowd and say, what's with him? <laughs> Unless you see that like one of the politicians, you know, that who was it that got to be Speaker of the House, you know, when he was boo-hooing because he got appointed. Well, maybe they thought it was tears of joy, but it wasn't, we know from the Gospel of Luke. Here's the thing that sets Mark apart from the other three Gospels. Jesus immediately goes to the temple. And, and uh, you may read verse 11. In fact, you notice it's, it's like in my particular version, it, it's, it's double dark, which means they made a new paragraph out of it. One, one sentence, uh, one verse paragraph, but a new paragraph. I don't think that's right at all. Now, the other texts pick up, and they will have in the following day Jesus coming into the temple and, and throwing the rascals out and cleansing the temple. But here, Jesus goes in. By the way, I think this is a sign of ownership. Jesus is going to possess and to evaluate what is his. Is it not? When he throws them out, he says, this is my father's house. I, hey, I have all the business in the world to be here. The question is, what are these goats and sheep and money changers doing here? That's the problem, not Jesus being there. He goes and he identifies himself with the temple and with the temple cleansing. So here's what I'm saying. The next verses, verses 12 through 26 which talk about, by the way, here's another Markin sandwich. Remember we talked about sandwiches? Where he splits something, like you've got uh, Jairus, and, and then the woman who touches Jesus for healing, and then you come back to Jairus again. In Mark, you start with Jesus at the temple, you move to the cursing of the fig tree, and you come back to the cleansing of the temple. So you've got a Markin sandwich, where he puts those together, I think, for emphasis. But verses 12 through 26 are key to understanding this. What they're saying to us is, this is what Jesus came to Jerusalem to do. This is why he's here. Now, you've got to understand that from the standpoint of the expectations. The expectations were Jesus came to Jerusalem to take on Rome, not the religious leaders. Jesus came to Jerusalem to throw out Rome and to start his kingdom, and the disciples are jockeying for who gets to sit on one, what spot. It's not about that at all. Jesus came to Jerusalem to clean it up. That's the way I understand this. And that's what Mark tells us. The first thing is Jesus appearing at the temple, setting the stage for the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. All right. The people failed to repent. And consequently, 
it's not Jerusalem that is judged immediately. It is Jesus. You see, in order for the king to come, sin has to be dealt with. Jesus came to cleanse. And the people in Jerusalem, all of them, did not acknowledge their sins. Now, I want to go to the external evidence if we can. That's the next frame there for you. External evidence that really puts this uh, coming of our Lord in perspective. When you look at the Old Testament, I just happened to be reading through Ezekiel, and then I got to Ezekiel 23, and I realized Jerusalem is not only the capital of Judea, it is the symbol that represents that. I don't know whether we'd like to admit it or not, but Washington, D.C. is not only the capital of our country, it represents who we are. And i got to tell you, folks, it isn't pretty. Jerusalem is the symbol. And when you look at the Old Testament, God says specifically, not just that he is coming to judge Israel or to judge Judah, he says specifically, look out, Jerusalem, I'm coming to judge. That's the Old Testament. Now, I, when I get to heaven, I'm not ready to apologize to Jonah yet. He's still, he's still on my bad boy list. I do need to apologize to John the Baptist. Because here's what I've said of John before. I've said, John the Baptist didn't get it all right. He was right that Jesus was coming to judge, but he confused the first coming of Jesus with the second. I think I missed it. I think I missed it. Remember Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is very clear. I baptize you with water, but Jesus, the one who comes after me, he baptizes with fire. He's going to clean house. And the key word of John's preaching can be summarized in one word, and that is the word repent. Is it not? Repent. When Jesus begins his public ministry, what is the first word out of his mouth? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In order for the kingdom to be established, sin has to be dealt with. The king is here, but so is sin. And there is not one indication from any in that group that, that receive the Lord in, in welcoming arms, there is not one indication of sin or repentance. There is great rejoicing over his miracles. There is great rejoicing over what they hope he will do to Rome and whatever. Not one indication of repentance. And yet, I believe that would have been the proper response. So Jesus says in Luke 19 and Luke chapter 12, the kingdom isn't coming immediately. That was evident to us before the triumphal entry. The Lord's indictment comes against Jerusalem and his weeping on the way up is saying, how sad it is, Jerusalem doesn't recognize who I am and what this day means. And then the clear statements of the other Gospels that make it crystal clear that nobody got why Jesus had come. Now here's the one that really caught me off guard. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. Oh, here's another one of my off-the-wall things because I haven't found anybody that said this either. Now, they may have said it, and I may not have found them. I've always puzzled over this statement in 1 Peter chapter 4. The con- By the way, remember the link between Peter and Mark, okay? And therefore, the Gospel of Mark? 
the, the book of 1 Peter has a primary subject of suffering, right? So he is saying in early chapter 4 that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. So there is some relationship between suffering and purification from sin. And then he goes on and he says, it's no wonder that you're being persecuted by your colleagues. You used to go off and get drunk with them. Now they're wondering what's wrong with you. And then he says in verse 12, Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. First Peter 1 says our testing is for our purification. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in the name, in that name, let him glorify God for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So I said to myself, so what does he mean by the household of God? That phrase, the Greek phrase, that precise phrase, in almost every instance that I can think of, Old Testament, Septuagint, New Testament, refers to the temple. Refers to the temple. I think that Peter is taking us back to the triumphal entry, and what he's saying is, see, here are all these people, and, and they're, they're wide open to God's judgment on Romans <laughs> and on Gentiles. Oh, let it come. They're a batch of Jonas. But the judgment that must come is first a judgment for his people. And when the Israelites fail to acknowledge their sin and repent of it, and they reject Jesus, it is he who bears the judgment of that city. Now, when you go to the book of Acts, and you see this thing playing out, now the redemption has been made, the offer is made for those to turn to Christ and to turn away from their sin so that they will not enter into the judgment that's coming upon that city. 70 A.D., it comes. But the judgment came upon Jesus. Those who received Jesus missed the judgment. But when you read in the New Testament, there is a judgment that is a purification that comes upon the saints. When you look at Ephesians 5, a husband is to deal with his wife as Christ deals with the church. His purpose, Christ's purpose, is to take the church and cleanse her and purify her and make her ready for his return. Right? Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, I come to you and I wanted to deal with you as a bride who I will present faultless before the Lord Jesus as the groom. That's the picture that you see of our Lord coming. Our Lord comes to those who are in white garments, those who are pure, those who are holy. You could say those who are sanctified. 
So what is the response that the Christian ought to have to the coming of Christ? And I speak now of his second coming. Second Peter, chapter 3. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless, and regard the patience of God to be salvation, just as our beloved Paul, according to wisdom given to him, has written. Uh, And he says, uh, back to verse 14, If you look for these things, be diligent to be found waiting, expectant, holy, Pure. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ ought to inspire us to repent of sin, to strive for God to work in our lives to make us holy brides ready for the wedding. Should it not? What I would suggest to you is, I think many of us, myself included, are no different than the Jerusalemites of Jesus' day at his first coming. I think that when I ponder the second coming of Christ, I don't think about my sin. I don't think about repentance. I think about what Jesus is going to do to them other guys. I think about what Jesus is going to do to take away sickness and sorrow and suffering and all of the pain for my life. And what Peter says is, in preparation for his return, God is bringing us suffering. Suffering that purifies us and prepares us for him. But the reception Jesus got was a reception of those who thought it was the end of suffering. And so because Israel would not suffer, Jesus did. As I look at this, I think one of the things it's saying is it's all about Jesus. And I think so often when we get into uh, our our Christian experience, it's mostly about us. What is Jesus going to do for me? What is he going to do to make me feel better, be more successful, whatever it is? It's about me. When you look at Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's about Jesus and his glory in the church. Is it not? It's about him. Then you come to chapter 4, and chapter 4 starts talking to us about how we ought to live to achieve those purposes. Colossians chapter 1 is saying, God has done this to exalt Christ as the head of the church, so that in Him, everything is with Him, and He becomes preeminent. It's about Jesus. That, I think, failed to happen in those instances. Well, I could go on, but let me simply say this. The real great entrance is the one that we read about in Revelation chapter 21, is it not? It's the new Jerusalem that comes down. There's the triumphal entry. By the way, the term triumphal entry is not found in Scripture because the reality was it wasn't that glorious. The real triumphal entry is when our Lord Jesus himself comes to receive, to embrace his flawless bride. And that ought to be our expectation and our hope. Father, thank you for these these verses. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who in borrowing 
those donkeys in riding down that hill knew he was orchestrating his death. He came to a group of people who did not really know who he was and certainly did not know what he was about. Father, we live in a world where many people view success in terms of large crowds and enthusiasm. And we know that's not necessarily an evidence of your, your uh, favor or grace. It could be, but it may not be.